cutting the second Adam. The first Adam, of course, being the one that was created in the garden of Adam and Eve. And the second Adam, also referred to the last Adam, is Jesus Christ. And we have been talking about the fact that Jesus Christ came to remove the curse, to restore all that was lost in Adam, and to realize all the potential that was present in Adam. Through Jesus Christ, we have more than just a return to a pre-fallen state because Adam was innocent, but it was not righteous. That's why he fell. But Christ is the righteous one, and he's going to fully realize all that God intended for Adam. So a very important part of that is the millennial kingdom. And I've told you I'm chairing the study committee on, on the millennium, and so I'm uh, floating uh, material uh, by you to help me think through these issues and to formulate the study paper that needs to present presented to annual conference. But uh, tonight, I begin with the question to focus on why the millennial kingdom? Why do we need a millennial kingdom? There are those within evangelicalism that don't believe in a, that there is a literal millennial kingdom, that Christ will reign here on earth. They see only a heavenly reign of Christ, and that uh, it's understood in an allegorical way that Christ is going to, to reign in the future here on earth. So why is a millennium necessary? You don't have these notes, but just listen as I try to develop some things as background to your handout tonight. God had placed Adam in kingship over this world. In Genesis 1.26, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. But notice that that word, translated NAS, let him rule over the fish of the sea. Uh, The King James uses the word dominion. It is a kingdom word. And so Adam was placed as king over this earth. We find in, in the word of God there is always the eternal kingdom, that God reigns as supreme over all things, but yet he bestowed upon Adam... The responsibility, being made in God's image, being made in God's likeness, to act like God acts, to rule over this earth, and thus represent God. Allow God to be seen in the way in which this world is governed. But unfortunately, of course, Adam failed and failed miserably. But he had two responsibilities, as I mentioned to you this morning. In Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The two primary responsibilities of Adam was to develop this earth, uh, to cause it to flourish, to use the resources that were present in the garden of Eden. And, of course, if you read on in Genesis, you find out there's gold there, there's, there's uh, all kinds of precious minerals. Well, he was to develop it. He was to make this earth even a greater place than it was already created. It certainly was created good. But there was to be that creative activity of mankind reflecting the creative activity of God. 
And the second thing that he was to do was to keep it, to keep it. Or, uh, some uh, uh, translate, preserve it. To keep is to safeguard, to protect, to preserve. He was to watch over the uh, earth so that it would be preserved. Uh, so he had a responsibility that it wouldn't be polluted. And ultimately, the responsibility is to guard it against sin. And of course, he allowed sin to enter this world. And as a result, the ground is cursed. And today, we still live in this fallen world. But God was concerned that there would be a kingdom that would represent his kingdom. And so, as you fast forward through the Old Testament, you get to the place where God raises up the kingdom of Israel, that they might manifest the rule, the governorship, if you will, the authority of God, so that mankind could look at an earthly rule and see a heavenly rule, a rule that is in keeping with God's commands and God's person. And so God gave instruction. In Deuteronomy 17, he talks about a king that's going to be established. And he says this, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are round about me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. He's not to be selfish. All these things are about himself. He shall not increase gold for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself. He's not to be like the king's that existed in the earth around him. His rule was to be different because God's rule is different. Well, Israel wanted a king when they enter the land. And uh, they come to Samuel and they said they want a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that you say to them. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them out from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you will solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. This is referring to Saul, of course. And he says to them, you don't really want a king, because let me tell you what this king is going to be like. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties. And some to do his plowing and to keep his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take for your daughters, for perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, and your vineyards, and your gardens, and give them to his servants. So the idea here is, 
This king is going to be concerned about himself. And he's going to take all your good things and heap them up to himself. That is exactly what the king was not to be. He was not to be selfish. He was not to rule for his own aggrandizement or for his own betterment, but rather he was to rule for the benefit of others. So David comes along. The uh, king that is described as the man after God's own heart. And what is unique about David is found in 2 Samuel 5 verse 12 and it reads as follows. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David realized that God had made him king not for his own benefit but for the benefit of the people. And it is in that that David is a man after God's own heart. He understood the purpose. He understood the reason of the kingship. You see, it was to cultivate and it was to keep. One of the primary responsibilities of the king was to fight the enemies of God's people. And of course, David, you all know the story, is a very uh, young man, goes out to fight Goliath. And he does so for two reasons. One, to defend the honor of God, the one that Israel worships. And then secondly, to protect Israel from its enemies, which was the primary responsibility of a king. Well, having said that David realized that the Lord established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, the very next verse reads as follows. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. So he does just what the other uh, king Saul did and what the kings do after him. He multiplies wives. And even though he knows what God wants, he doesn't achieve what is God's purpose. And so we find out that there is going to be one who is going to come namely Jesus Christ, who's going to be the true king that is going to rule this earth in the manner in which it is totally in keeping with the rule of the sovereign God who rules over all things. He is going to reveal the person of God in the manner in which he literally rules on the face of this earth And he is going to reverse all that was destroyed in Adam. And he's going to fulfill all the potential that existed. So turn with me to the handout. And uh, as we turn, let's go to page three. Scripture's use of the term kingdom. In order to understand the scriptural teaching of the kingdom, we have to understand its usage in the scripture. First, there are the eternal aspects of the kingdom. This is the most comprehensive usage of the term kingdom of God. It refers to the rule of God in all spheres of the universe, and the rule is as old as the universe itself. 1 Chronicles 29.11 Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. 
Psalm 103.19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. God rules over all people, nations, beings, and powers. Daniel 4.30 and 31. The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the world word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? So here is this God that, that reigns in heaven. And uh, many times we find that that metaphor for the hosts of God, that, that he has this army in heaven. It, it depicts his protection. It depicts the way in which he fights against the enemies of his people. But he rules over all things. Just keep in mind that we often talk about God's sovereignty over here, around here. And the word sovereign means king. When we're talking about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his rule. We're talking about his kingship. And there is this constant reminder that he rules over all things. He is sovereign. Secondly, there is also the present aspect of the kingdom that was ushered in at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Jesus begins an inauguration of a kingdom. In this second sense, God rules in the hearts of all who trust in his salvation. In part, this is a recognition of who and what God is. So in Luke 17, 20, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us in the kingdom of his dear son. Note the present tense of the verb. We are made a part of his kingdom now, a kingdom that we were not a part of before. This is the aspect of accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. He forgives our sins, sits on the throne of our lives. He rules our thoughts, actions. We acknowledge his supremacy and rejoice in his protection. So right now we are a part of Christ's kingdom. Third, It's the third aspect of the kingdom, which is yet future. We must understand that the fact of Christ's present spiritual kingdom and the fact that God is eternally king over the entire universe do not negate the predictions of a kingdom of Christ which is to come into the world in the future. This future kingdom is a kingdom with a visible earthly manifestation in which Christ will reign over two classes of people, those who recognize him as Lord and those who give only nominal recognition and a kingdom in which, in absolute authority, he will maintain external peace, safety, and righteousness. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever. Let's go back to page one. At the very heart, at the very heart, of Jesus' ministry is his kingship. It is the establishment of his kingdom. 
And you can see that as you work your way through the New Testament. The importance of the kingdom can be seen in the emphasis it receives in Christ's teaching. First, in Matthew 4.23, the early Galilean ministry with the following words. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Somehow, and I don't know why, we have truncated the reference to the gospel. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rarely do we talk about the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But that's really the proper delineation. The good news, the gospel, is about the kingdom. And the establishment of his kingdom. But we have truncated that and emphasized more and more the gospel which we've turned into the aspect, well, we have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ, which is true, but the kingdom is much more than that. And the gospel is that the kingdom is being established. Luke records that Christ came for the kingdom's purpose, Luke 4.43. He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore I am sent. The Sermon on the Mount is devoted to an exposition of the character and conduct of those who are citizens of the kingdom. It begins with a series of pronouncements of blessing to those who belong to the kingdom and concludes by making a sharp division between those who will enter the kingdom and those who will not. In forecasting the course of the age to his disciples, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And then lastly, in the teaching of the truths of salvation, Jesus speaks of the kingdom to Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said to them, Very, very, I say unto you, except a man be born again. And then notice these words, He cannot see the kingdom of God. We have truncated being born again and separated it from being a part of God's kingdom. The reason you need to be born again is because you need to be translated out of this kingdom of this world, the satanic kingdom, into Christ's glorious kingdom. And we had talked last week about how we are united to Adam by birth. We are added to Christ by faith. And so he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've got to have a new relationship. If you're going to be a part of this kingdom. B. The importance of the kingdom is seen in the narration of the events in Christ's life. His birth. When Herod heard that there was a child who was to be king of the Jews. He had all the children killed in Bethlehem. And his environs that were two years old and younger. His miracles. After Christ's feeding the 5,000 we read in John 6. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again to a mountain himself alone. They wanted to come and take him by force to be the earthly ruler now. But it wasn't time for him to be the earthly ruler. And so he departs. But we need to realize, as we think about the miracles, we tend to, to focus on the people that were the recipients of the miracles rather than to focus on the revelatory aspect of the miracles. In other words, the scripture tells us time and time again that the miracles are signs, as in John chapter 20. Many signs Jesus did, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. So they are signs. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He heals a blind man. 
Jesus takes the miracles and treats them as signs. And you can divide the miracles up into categories to demonstrate the fact that Jesus is the king. And so he has miracles in which he overcomes sin and death by raising the dead, healing the sick. One of the categories that is most notable to me and a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom is that he does uh, creation miracles. He walks on the water. He rebukes the wind and the sea. And so all of these things are subject unto him. And they marvel and they say, what kind of person is this? Because he has jurisdiction, he has power, he has authority over all things. The miracles reveal that. It was never his intention at that time to heal every single individual. Jesus did not remove all disease at that time. But one day he will. When he returns, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more dying. There will be no more death. He will conquer it all. In the triumphal entry, all four Gospels record the triumphal entry as fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly, riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. We've talked about these things when we have, have preached uh, Good Friday services and um, uh, Palm Sunday services. But there's a tremendous amount of symbolism that's associated with Jesus, who is king, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That was a lowly animal. That's not what kings rode on. They rode on big stallions. Or they rode in magnificent chariots. They did not demean themselves by riding in on a donkey. But it was to be symbolic. Look at your king. He is so different from any king you have ever known. Then we're going to see as we work through this that the implication is that as we are part of his kingdom, we are to be as distinct from this world as he is. As different as he is, is as different as we should be. Even as we looked at the example this morning. He became a servant, we should become a servant. That's not what rulers in this age do. They use their power and their authority for their aggrandizement, for their happiness, for their contentment, to achieve their purposes and their end. But the authority that we possess, whether it be in the home, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in the church, whether it be in the political realm, whatever power we possess, it should always be used in two ways. To cultivate, to develop people, to develop resources, to make the most of the situation, to make the work prosper, to move things along, to, to develop, and to keep, and to protect. And so one of the primary functions of our government is to protect the people. One of the primary responsibilities of the elders is to protect the church against false teaching, against strife and division. It is to cultivate, it is to teach, it's to instruct, it's to cause to grow, it's to enhance, and it's to protect and to keep. Then in his death, A, 
the accusation that the Jews brought against Jesus pertained to the kingdom. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. The mockery of Christ centered on the kingdom. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. He was the king. But he was a humble king. He was a servant king. He was not an aggrandizing king. He came not to serve himself. He came to serve others. And in his kingship, he responded in a way that no king ever responded before. The official placard at his death related to the kingdom, Matthew 27, 37, and set up over his head the accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So then let's go to number three on page five. There is an emphasis in scripture on the future aspect of the kingdom. Jesus taught us to pray for the coming aspect of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that is an awesome but a wonderful prayer. The prayer is that the kingdom would come and that it would be manifested in such a way that God's will, as it's revealed and accomplished in heaven, would be revealed and accomplished on this earth. That that righteousness would be manifested here. We certainly don't live in that day and age now. But we long for it. And it's going to be achieved when Jesus Christ returns. B, at the Last Supper, Jesus looked toward the day when he would drink wine in his Father's kingdom. But I say unto you, I will not drink forth this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. At the ascension, Jesus spoke of the future aspect of the kingdom. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father hath put in his power. In the New Testament prophecy, the book of Revelation centers around the coming kingdom. Revelation eleven fifteen and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become, present tense, the kingdom of our Lord. But you see, that present tense is future to us. Now, in the book of Revelation, will come a time when the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The New Testament explains the tensions that exist in the believer's life as a result of the fact that Christ's kingdom has not yet come. Hebrews 2.7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see him not yet all things put under him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Something that I did not say this morning, 
And I regret, and so I hope that you were here this morning as I preached that message. And I concluded with the verse that says that uh, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I talked about three ways in which Jesus brings glory to God the Father. But I didn't speak about a fourth way. And it is the most mind-boggling way of all. If you remember the accusation that that a serpent made to Adam, he said, you will not die, referring to eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but God knows that the day that thou eatest thereof, you should be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want to share his glory with anyone. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, took upon himself, in addition to his deity, humanity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2, who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. God the Son took upon himself humanity. He will evermore He will evermore be the God-man. That taking on humanity was not temporary. It was not just for the 33 years that Jesus was on this earth. Jesus rose again. Jesus is coming back. That God-man. Here's the mind-boggling thing. We are to worship the God-man. God, the Father, shares even the worship that he receives with one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. You and I aren't going to be worshipped, but he is. And he's worshipped to the glory of God. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, say that to worship Jesus Christ is blasphemous. They see it as dishonoring the Father. But we find in the New Testament just the opposite. Worship of Jesus Christ does not dishonor the Father. It actually honors Him more. Because His true character is revealed. And that He is willing to share His glory with another. That gets to be mind-boggling when you try to put your, your hands around that. And you and I get to be sons of God. And you and I get to be in his presence. And you and I get to be with the angels. And you and I get to experience that glory. And the scripture refers to us as being glorified. And being in a glorified state. We want to unpack all of that. But it's exciting stuff when you really start to unpack it and to think about it and reflect on it. But tonight, I just want you to think about what God intended for this world and realize that the gospel we preach is ultimately the gospel of the kingdom. 
And what we are rejoicing in is the good news that you and I can be a part of the kingdom of God. In all that that means. And it's a whole lot more than what we usually think about. We usually just think about it means our sins are forgiven. It means we have an entirely different world experience and we have an entirely different worldview. The kingdom of this world is nothing like the world as we presently know it. And our responsibility as being a part of the kingdom today is twofold. To work at making this earth a better place, cultivating it, developing it, using our gifts and talents to promote in a creative way a better world to live in, and secondly, to try to preserve it and keep it, watch over it, protect it, primarily from evil and sin. But yes, even pollution and and other ways that, that it mars this creation. We are to be good stewards of all that God has given to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and just ask you would help us as we seek to understand more of your kingdom and live in light of your rule. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.